previously on Dying for a Fight. He ended up kissing myself and another comrade. I remember joking my friend Tisa that our first kiss wasn't supposed to be that abrupt. How do, how, what's the evidence linking them? I can't answer that. I think it's understandable that at a two-year mark, a parent would say, well, why isn't this being given any kind of priority? When will it be, if not now? The way that we approach any case has nothing to do with anybody's underlying politics. At that point, I was very on my guard. And d does he know that you know Armenia? Yeah, I made it very clear that was my friend that was involved in the incident. Did you ever ask him, like, did you kill Sean? That I never asked him directly. I know through the legal system I will never receive justice. It's just something I have to accept. The show contains adult language and occasional descriptions of violence. Please keep that in mind when choosing when and where to listen. Raise your hand if you're willing to work with me to fix our broken system until we get to defunding and abolishment. In 2020, during the height of the racial justice protests, a Portland city commissioner began advocating for abolishing elements of the police. And the same thing was happening in other cities. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department. To end policing as we know it. Sean Kellier's radical ideas had broken through to public consciousness. Some kind of action was being taken. As we entered 2021, it seemed like the far right was in retreat. Trump had lost the election, and street violence had largely gone quiet after the U.S. Capitol riot. With images burned into our minds of a police officer pressing his knee on a black man's neck, and men with zip ties storming the Capitol, it seemed at first that more people were recognizing the threats of police brutality and far-right extremism. By mid-April, the first person pled guilty for crimes associated with participation in the January 6th insurrection. Arrests and indictments continued as federal law enforcement tracked down people who sought to undermine democracy. And a few days after that first guilty plea, a jury convicted former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin on murder charges for killing George Floyd. These were high-profile legal convictions. But on the whole, what seemed like a coming reckoning never arrived. Policing hasn't fundamentally been reformed or abolished, and the far right hasn't been deterred. Less than two weeks after Chauvin's conviction, our reporting team was out on the street again, covering the workers' rights holiday, May Day, in Oregon. Uh, there's, I don't know, maybe 200, 300 people here at the most. Um, lots of proud boys, lots of people who are armed. Uh, During the day, Producers Ryan Haas and Grant Irving traveled with me to Oregon's capital, Salem. This rally was billed as a pro-Second Amendment protest, and lots of Proud Boys carried guns. Do I have any kids that want to come up here and do the Pledge of Allegiance for me? All children that want to come up here and do the Pledge of Allegiance? In this Salem park, about an hour from Portland, there weren't any left-wing counter-protesters around. It was like the Proud Boys were testing their comeback after the insurrection, as two dozen of their alleged members have pending charges from January 6th. One leader in the Oregon Proud Boys, a man named Carl Flip Todd, 
said the group was, quote, rebranding. But along with the new talking points was the same attitude I had encountered for years. This is how he reacted when I introduced myself and tried to join a group of journalists who were interviewing him. So part of my... I know who you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm I know. Try, I'm, you, try, I'm trying. I'm I know, trying. I know. Yeah. 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 Uh, you're lucky you're not getting your ass kicked. I'm, I'm <laughs> the Proud Boy rally wasn't the only protest that day either. About an hour away from Salem, in a Portland suburb, another crowd of a few hundred people gathered in a parking lot outside City Hall. They were protesting vaccine and mask mandates. One speaker quoted Oregon's governor to get a reaction from the crowd. With this. this was from Kate Brown's press conference just a few days ago. I'm going to read it. way to lift health and safety restrictions is for Oregonians to get vaccinated as quickly as possible. So we're being held hostage. I just want to make that very clear. It was the type of crowd that had been popping up all across the country to protest COVID-19 health restrictions. Like the Proud Boy rally, most of the people here were white. But unlike the Proud Boy rally, there were a lot more women here. There wasn't security in paramilitary gear holding large guns. On the surface, this crowd might have seemed more moderate. But among them was a man who entered the Capitol on January 6th, joining the group of people that tried to stop the election certification process. Patriot Prayer leader Joey Gibson was at this anti-COVID rally as well, mingling with the crowd, marching with them. The far right was rebranding in a way. COVID-19 has given extremists a new recruiting tool, a way to bring in people who might not condone threatening to assassinate Nancy Pelosi or allegedly beating a U.S. Capitol Police officer with an American flag. People who don't think they're racist or bigots, but are enraged at the idea that the government might make their kid wear a mask at school. That May Day, the animosity was building again. The fight hasn't ended. From something else, Oregon Public Broadcasting. This is the final episode of The Fault Line, Dying for a Fight. I'm Sergio Olmos. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. 
In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. The national response to far-right extremism has been decisive in some ways. Hundreds of people now face charges for their participation in the insurrection. But it's not clear that January 6 was a complete inflection point either. Just days after the insurrection, the threat of far-right extremists was already being downplayed by an old storyline. What about Antifa? An exclusive Reuters Ipsos poll out Monday shows about half of Republicans believe the Capitol riot was largely a nonviolent protest, or that it was the handiwork of left-wing activists, quote, trying to make Trump look bad. The false narrative was taking hold, despite there being obvious evidence of violence by the far right on January 6th, and no evidence that anti-fascists had taken part. Portland, over the last several years, has become a kind of shorthand to scare people worried about the far left. According to conservative media, if Antifa has a home base, a place all the godless, black-clad anarchists line up to catch a bus to terrorize America's heartland, it's in Portland. Even the Biden administration listed some so-called anti-authority, anti-capitalist anarchists as a legitimate threat to national security. When I asked Laura if the anti-fascists are a threat, She brought up the thousands of people who turned up in downtown Portland for protests in the summer of 2020. I mean, look at the numbers we had downtown this summer. There was no cohesiveness. There was no organization. With those numbers, dude, so much more could have been done. Come on. It's not a threat. How how many people that are actually like Sean, and I don't mean like him personally, but like as committed as Sean, like right now, do you think there are in Portland? Less Less than 10. Who stormed the capital of the United States? Who killed the police officer? Was it Antifa? No. Who was responsible for things like the Oklahoma City bombing? Who's been out there lynching people? Who's been out there literally killing people because of their race? Has Antifa broke some windows? Ooh, bad. The numbers back up what Laura is saying. According to the Anti-Defamation League, over the last 10 years, far-right extremists are responsible for 75% of domestic extremist killings. The only documented killing by a self-described anti-fascist was when Michael Rynell shot and killed Jay Danielson in 2020. The data shows that far-right extremists are much more likely to hurt or kill people. But until January 6, federal officials and other law enforcement have long seemed to focus on anti-fascists as an equal threat. I asked Michael Fletcher if he thinks leftists pose such a threat. Well, it depends. What is threatened? If what you mean is the way of life we currently have is threatened by them? Yeah, absolutely. This way of life is fucking garbage. You know, do you realize most people my age don't think they're going to retire? We don't think we're ever going to own a house, bud. We have consigned ourselves to the idea of working for barely enough to live till we die. 
Micah feels that the threat anti-fascists and anarchists pose is to the people in power, to the establishment. They draw attention to failures by our institutions and to the people who control them. People in Black Bloc break windows at immigration facilities because migrant children are detained at the border. The anti-fascists show up and chase out groups like the Proud Boys because police won't. For months after January 6th, there was little conflict in Portland. But in the late summer of 2021, the far right started coming back into the city. One afternoon, there were scuffles with about a dozen people. On that day, a man with a group of far-right extremists shot a projectile at a Middle Eastern man, a bystander who was on the phone with his mother. The next night, the night we were recording with Micah, there was an hour-long fight with fireworks, paintballs, and pepper spray involving dozens of people in downtown Portland. Then a couple of weeks later, on August 22, 2021, in Portland, a group of Proud Boys and other far-right figures came to rally for what they called political prisoners of January 6th. This was about a year after police allowed a right-wing caravan rally into Portland that ended with Jay Danielson being shot and killed. So what was the Portland city government's response ahead of the planned rally? Shoes love, yeah. It don't always feel good, oh, it don't always look right, but I choose love. We're gonna choose the way of love. I give another round of applause. And they held a video conference ahead of the event where they encouraged people to choose love. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler also held a separate press conference. Our ask is simple. We're asking you to choose love. Please join us. And with that, I'd like to turn this over to Portland Police Chief Chuck Lavelle. At the press conference, the mayor and the police chief implied that the anti-fascists and the Proud Boys should just stay apart. They said police were overworked and stretched thin. They could not promise safety if the protests turned violent. The Portland Police Bureau will monitor this event and will make arrests for crimes as resources allow. You should not expect to see police officers standing in the middle of crowds trying to keep people apart. Lavelle, the police chief, said ahead of time to not expect to see cops doing crowd control. And the result was that the anti-fascists and the Proud Boys thought out their differences in a roving street brawl in a working-class part of Portland. It was similar to the chaos a year before. One group of Proud Boys tipped over a van, and nearby, in a school parking lot, another group of Proud Boys climbed into the cabin of a truck to beat a man. At least one anti-fascist assaulted a journalist. The police never showed up. And then, just when I thought it was over, a man allegedly used a racial slur towards a black man in downtown Portland. Some anti-fascists confronted him. The man pulled a gun and ran behind a trash bin. Other journalists and I had been walking to a bar to file our stories when we saw the standoff. We ducked behind a car. In the back seat was a young boy. A Latino man on the street behind me started yelling, Bajate. I realized what was happening and started calling to the boy too, Bajate. The boy got out of the car and tried to run across to his family. I grabbed him and told him to hold on. Other journalists and I, and an entire street of people eating their dinner, watched as this man fired his gun. The anti-fascists started shooting back. Luckily, nobody was hit. Choose love isn't a solution. It isn't even a strategy to get to a solution. It's just a suggestion. Instead of keeping the peace, it's essentially allowing a kind of political fight club 
one that's escalating. In 2019, there were fistfights. In 2020, people pulled guns. And in one instance, one person was shot and killed. In 2021, people in the Northwest had shot at one another twice in under a month. And this isn't only in Portland. According to the nonprofit Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, which tracks conflict around the world, between January 2020 and June 2021, there were more than 550 protests in the United States where demonstrators carried or brandished firearms. Racist groups are showing up in communities across the country as well. Over the summer in Philadelphia, the group Patriot Front, which was established in the aftermath of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, tried to march through the city carrying flags. People in Philly confronted them directly. You real tough. You real tough. You fucking stupid There too, police did not show up quickly to confront the far right. After the massive uprising against police in 2020, many officers across the country said their critics were the ones causing problems. A then high-ranking New York City police officer, Terry Monahan, put it bluntly. The animosity towards the police right now. That really is probably the biggest thing that we're seeing. Uh, there's a feeling on the street that the police can't enforce the laws like they did in the past. And it's important for us to get communities out there saying, no, we want the police. But not all communities feel like going back to how police enforced laws in the past. To many people, including Micah Fletcher, the absence of police isn't a new phenomenon. When I was 12, I got jumped by like a group of kids from a high school. It was bad enough that I was covered in fucking blood. The cops took 30 fucking minutes to get there and didn't even take a report. They don't take care of us, they never fucking have, and we don't believe they ever will. Sean Kellier saw the rise of the far right and the way police relate to black, brown, and poor communities as serious problems. And he was willing to take sometimes extreme actions to confront those problems. If you want to take a lesson from Sean's life and death, here's one. There's a cycle of distrust and violence that forms when government leaders refuse to condemn far-right extremism, or when they conflate the far-right and far-left, or when they don't hold police accountable for failing the people they're supposed to protect. And the cost is human lives. More after this break. Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana, or is she just a social climber? I was silent. Were you silent, or were you silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air, or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently, ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together. It's the family that I suppose she's never had. And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went down. Only on the podcast, Infamous. What if you could become stronger, more resilient, cure disease, and all you have to do is get naked in the cold and breathe? You get into ice water, and instead of, like, freaking out, you relax. It's called the Wim Hof Method, and Gwyneth Paltrow and Justin Bieber love it. I do the ice plunge because it's good for your body. But there's also a dark side. How many people have died doing the Wim Hof Method? We can override even death! Listen on the podcast Infamous. That's Infamous, playing now. Today in Portland, Arminio Lives is spray-painted in buildings. It's Arminio who's screen-printed on shirts and hoodies. Arminio has become a kind of anti-fascist folk hero. 
but that doesn't matter much to Micah. I don't think anybody doesn't want to see some consequence of some variety occur for the murder of our dear friend. We met with Micah Fletcher for a last interview in August of 2021. During that interview, Micah agreed with Switch and Lucky's decision not to work with police anymore on solving Sean's killing. Sean would roll over in his grave, rise out of it, and fucking beat me over the head with a chair if I ever aided a cop in an investigation. Remember, Micah did cooperate with police and prosecutors following the stabbing in Portland on the light rail train. He did testify in the trial of Jeremy Christian, helping to send him to prison for the rest of his life. It was a choice Micah and Sean talked about. He was like, you know what? Get it. Trying to help a couple of brown girls never have to be worried about a neo-Nazi again. Understand. He told you that. Oh, yeah. He was like, that's a tough one. I don't, I don't know if I could have done what you just did. Sean strongly opposed prisons and police. So helping them in any way, even a case as gruesome as the train killings, would have created a moral dilemma. What do you think you would have done? Oh, fuck. Well, first of all, I don't think he would ever be in my position. If Sean had been on that train, nobody would have died. We were fine. He'd have laid that motherfucker out. I assume the best of most people I come in contact with until I'm proven wrong. I thought Jeremy was just having a mental health crisis. I really did. Micah's first reaction to Christian was trying to gently force him off the train. But Micah thinks that Sean would have had a different tactic. You threaten some kids like that, he's just gonna beat you, period. The difference is intention. This is my opinion. But it seemed like what he learned is that the best way to handle a problem is to handle it yourself. What I learned is the best way to handle a problem is to talk it through and understand. And, and so because of that difference in nature, like the thing is Sean would never be in that position. He just handled that motherfucker and it's over. Nobody would die, wouldn't be no problem, no knife. He'd have probably already seen the knife. I was too busy pretending that that guy was a human being. I was wrong. On the MAX train in 2017, Micah wishes that he had done what he imagined Sean would have done. I blew on my dice, rolled them, I rolled wrong. I fucked up. It happens. You have to live with the consequences afterwards and you never, never know what they're gonna be. That's the problem with violence, is violence is random, it's chaotic. Being willing to put yourself in physical danger for a cause is a risky proposition. And over the past several years in Portland, more people have been willing to take that risk because like Sean, they feel anger. Sean saw injustice and he saw that, that certain people, certain groups didn't have a voice, especially you know, low-income working class. He so desperately wanted to save so many people. He realized you know, he's going he's gonna to keep trying, but you can't. The feeling that justice is just for the privilege is bringing more and more people into activism. But Micah, who has faced consequences of taking action, is wary. And for the love of God, don't be me. Don't be Sean. Don't do this dumb shit where you die for some goddamn cockamamie sense of what's right and wrong. I'm not saying don't fight for what you believe in, but if you're going to fight for what you believe in, you better understand what the stakes are. Because the stakes are everything you've ever loved and everything that the people in your life love about you. And if they lose it, they don't get it back. I think what stuck with me most is what Laura, Micah, and Lucky mean when they say there is no justice. Because Sean Kellier's homicide can be solved. 
police could work to arrest whoever killed him. And that would be a good thing. It would show a system that works as intended, equal for everyone. Maybe restore some of the trust that has been lost in Portland police. But a hard truth I've found in the many hours I've spent interviewing Laura and Sean's friends is that none of those things may change how they feel. It may not bring them a sense of justice. For them, justice isn't necessarily about punishing the person who killed Sean. It's about having Sean back. I want my friend back. That's why we're not willing to talk to the cops, why we're not running up on somebody's house and burning it the fuck to the floor. Because we don't really give a fuck. We want our friend back. And none of that's going to get him back. (laughs) Sean wasn't just what he wrote on blogs. He wasn't just a protester in those YouTube videos. He was a young man surrounded by family and a community. That was my baby. That was my, that was my firstborn. That was my, my, I loved him so much. My child's gone. I will never get to hold him again. It's, he's gone. People remember Armenio, but Laura remembers Sean, the son, the big brother, the friend. Like even in class, the elementary teachers are like, oh, he's just so great. He'll find the most shy person and really bring him out of their shell. He's always been good at that. The son she respected for his values and his passion. He, he wasn't in it for the limelight. He actually stood up for what he believed in. He would have your back in a heartbeat. He was one person that you could truly trust to have at your side. He stood up for those that didn't have a voice. With the evidence in Sean's case laid bare, and police still not making an arrest. It's unclear where Laura Kellier goes after this. And how is a parent supposed to live believing she has evidence of who killed her son, but having no way to address it? What kind of parent knows the person who killed their child and doesn't take care of it? So it's like, I don't even know anymore. It's like, I feel like I'm almost going crazy because part of me really, really wants to understand why a person could do this, but the other part of me just wants to get my baby. And I want him to pay. So I, I, I still, I'm just so fucked up in the head. Laura Kellier's stuck in the criminal justice system we have, a system that Sean fought against. Laura spent 2020 trying to carry on Sean's fight in the streets, to carry his pain in addition to her own, to connect with her son. She's organized memorials, and she's shaken the fences, both literally and metaphorically, to try to get some answers. What she needs now is someone else to step up. On an emotional level, Laura believes there's never going to be justice in Sean's case. Nothing can change the fact that someone killed him. And that's inherently unjust. Sean was a teenager when he first experienced radical politics at the Occupy Portland protests in 2011. Many of those protests that first inspired him were peaceful, and the level of police violence there would barely register today. During the Occupy protests, one of the most famous incidents of police force was when an officer pepper sprayed protester Liz Nichols in the face. A photographer captured the moment, Nichols' mouth frozen open forever in an unheard scream. 
that it pushed us up against a max ticket booth. We couldn't, we couldn't go anywhere. And when I started yelling at her, they decided they were going to pepper spray me. There was no warning at all about pepper spray. The media decried the police violence, but a jury ultimately ruled police were justified in their actions. It was at these same protests that a police officer tackled Sean to the ground, where he said he was punched, beginning his path toward radicalization. When thinking about Sean's story, I can't help but think about the young people who were out there in 2020. The policing doesn't need to be like that. I'm not doing anything. There's a lot of guns in the crowd. When you compare 2011 to 2021, it's undeniable that police brutality at protests and street violence have become much more intense and more common. Sometimes there's not only a threat, but a guarantee of violence. Whether that's a fight with police or the far left and the far right brawling for ideological control of a city. The Occupy protests seem quaint by today's standards. So then, what will the next 10 years of protests look like? Or the young activists who learn their first lessons in a street fight against local and federal officers armed for combat? Or the people who watch violence nightly on their phone while they scroll Twitter? 2020 was a dark year for many people for many reasons. And as I look ahead, it seems hard to find the light. Government has largely stopped trying to understand why people are protesting. It conflates two very different movements as equal, and it fails to understand how taking action, even small actions, like a focused effort to solve a young anti-fascist homicide, might help restore some trust. Dying for a Fight is a co-production between Something Else and OPB. This show was reported and produced by Grant Irving, Ryan Haas, and me, Sergio Olmos. We also had reporting and production help from Jonathan Levinson and Conrad Wilson. This episode was written by Ryan Haas, Grant Irving, and me, Sergio Olmos. Our editors are Anna Griffin and Lizzie Jacobs. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Our theme music is by Deli Girls. You can check out their music at delegirls.bandcamp.com. Music by Nolan Schneider and Pete GK. Sam Baer is our sound engineer. Executive producers for Dying for a Fight are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anna Griffin. Thanks also to Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, and E.K. Ekpatola. We had production assistance from Bashak Artin and Mia Warren. Special thanks for this series also goes to Morgan Holm, Kyra Asabe Bonsu, Lauren Elkinich, Maria Luisa Tucker, Jennifer McCormick, Jennifer Womack, Rebecca Morris, Jean-Paul Jassy, Sage Van Wing, David Matlin, Chris Shimamoto, and Jez Nelson. Oregon Public Broadcasting storytelling and podcasts from all across the Northwest happen only with the support of our members. Help keep access to this critical news and information freely available to everyone by joining OPB as a monthly sustainer or with a single contribution at opb.org slash pod. Thank you.